Thank you, everyone. Uh, yes, sabbatical is here. Uh, a few people have been asking, you know, how are things going to work? Um, what are some of the arrangements we've made? So uh, just practically speaking, uh, Ben Gad will be uh, like acting uh, lead pastor. Uh, he's the other elder who's on staff of the church. And uh, so for those kinds of things, you can definitely speak with him. Of course, uh, Courtney's going to keep everything working from a practical administrative uh, point of view. Uh, in terms of the preaching, uh, David will handle about half of the preaching load. We have uh, some fill-ins from Northview, uh, one of our sending churches, and Tim will do a few as well. So uh, I know you'll be in good hands. Uh, very thankful for the staff and uh, for you uh, in affording me this, this opportunity. Uh, I wanted to just say a couple other things sort of about uh, sabbatical as I've been reflecting on it in terms of the, you know, the benefit, the why. Uh, I, I really do think that this will be uh, good for me, uh, and I think good for you. Uh, it's, it's already been good for me. Uh, when we planned the sabbatical, which was back in the summer, uh, I had some concept of the, of the goodness of it, the value. You can see in scripture this principle of you know, letting land lie fallow every seven years so the nutrients kind of are restored, and, and I can see that's, that's a good thing. I want that. Uh, but I was surprised at uh, how difficult it was the closer I got to a sabbatical. Uh, for someone who uh, would say and have convictions about the fact that this is God's church and that God is the one who brings the growth, uh, it was convicting that all of a sudden I was feeling very anxious about this uh, as if somehow uh, I was responsible. So it's already been a good work in my heart. Uh, to, to confess to the Lord, man, I, I, I have no reason to fear. I should, I should not be thinking this way. So I'm, I'm hopeful and expectant that God will continue to do that kind of good, deeper uh, work in my own soul. Uh, I also think it will be good uh, for you. Uh, hopefully you also realize that as Ben just prayed, this is God's church and that he's the one who brings the growth and that it doesn't matter who is standing up here, it's God's voice that we come to hear. And uh, so I think it would be very good uh, for, for you as a church to not have me here, uh, to be confronted with the fact that uh, you know God speaks through his word, through his spirit, and that we should come each week, regardless of who's standing here, to hear from him. And so uh, I'm excited to hear the many stories uh, when I come back of how he has continued to work and maybe worked in even greater ways uh, in my absence. So uh, I think it'll be good. I'm really thankful for the opportunity. And I'd like to just pray for us. We're going to hear from him now uh, as we look to the last part of Hosea. So join with me again in prayer. Uh, Lord God, we, we do come, as I hope we come each week, with expectant hearts uh, that uh, this is your church, that we are your people, and uh, that your commitment to us is to continue to grow us in faithfulness. And that you reveal yourself to us through your word, through your spirit. And that, yes, you use human beings, but that ultimately it is, it is by your power, by your strength, by your grace that we even know who you are and that we can see you clearly. And so I pray that would happen again. Uh, I pray that your power would be unleashed as we give our attention, as that our hearts are softened uh, by your spirit to behold you more clearly through this last part of Hosea. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are alive and thank you that you speak and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I just said, chapter 14 of Hosea, if you've been with us at all through our series, uh, you know this has sort of been a long time coming. We've taken our time uh, through this book. Uh, also, you may have uh, uh, realized that this is a, I mean, this is a complex book. Uh, one that has uh, a lot of different layers going on. There's, there's definitely a lot of heaviness in this book. 
Uh, we've had a lot of passages that is just very clearly God saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge sin. You're my people. You are a wayward people. You're, you're going the wrong direction. And here are all the consequences. We've also had a lot of vivid pictures of what those consequences will look like. But we have uh, had the, the promise throughout the book uh, that God's love endures. Uh, from the very beginning when Hosea was called not just to speak the word of God, but to live it. Remember, he was called to go and marry Gomer, an unfaithful woman, and God said he must love this woman. God was giving us a picture of his love. And throughout, in all of the passages of, of consequence and warning, there has been this, this underlying, abiding sense of God's faithfulness, God's love. And here at the end, we have this just uh, put on display for us, that we have a faithful God who desires for us to be uh, in right relationship with him. Uh, that the pathway indeed to abundant life is to return to God and to be restored to him by his grace. So that's what we're going to see. I'm going to read the whole thing through and then we're going to dig into it. So here's God's word uh, to us this morning, starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands, in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them, I will be like the dew to Israel, he shall blossom like the lily, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And we'll pause there. Just one verse shy of the end. So two points for us this morning. And the first is this. God calls us to return to him. God calls us to return to him. We see it clearly in the very first verse. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. And we should be asking the question by this point in the book, why why does God say this? Why is he so insistent? Why this, this constant appeal for his people to return to him? His people, they were, I mean, they were unfaithful. They were ungrateful. They were disobedient. I mean, by this point in the book, it's very clear that, that the Israelites were not a people that were very lovable, that were even very likable. So, so why is it that God has this, this appeal to them here, even at these last stages, re- return to me? We know in human relationship why this might be the case. Like in marriages, where things have fallen apart, where there's been hurt or betrayal, even in those kinds of difficult situations, loneliness is a real factor. And oftentimes, when relationships are frayed, even when they're not, not in a really good place, either one of the two parties will just have a real sense of, of loneliness. If I, I, I don't have anyone now. I need someone. And we might think that that's, that that's God. It seems, in a sense, especially because he's making the comparison between a husband and a wife, that, that God needs us somehow. But we need to be very clear, that's not the case. Okay, God is completely self-sufficient completely satisfied and content within himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they have a perfect relationship. Uh, there is no need in God. That's not, that's not why he's making this appeal. 
The reason for it is because he can see clearly where his people are at and he still loves them. He is a God of love and he sees, if you look at the last of verse one there, he says, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. He knows where they are. He knows that they are on their own in a lost place far from him. They will never find their way back to him. But he loves them. He calls them to return. He calls us to return. The challenge, of course, is that for the Israelites, for those who have who've kind of departed, there's a lot of mixed feelings when it comes to returning. Uh, think, of a, think of a child, right, who's grown up, left home. Returning to home is, is there's a lot of mixed feelings there. Uh, it, it probably means, I mean, if you're in your late 20s, early 30s, and you're returning home, it probably means life hasn't quite worked out the way that you thought. And so there's your own internal sense of wrestle, sense of disappointment, but also there's a, maybe a fear of what will the response be when I come back? There, there's oftentimes a lot, of, a lot of animosity, a lot of fear of, of, of disappointment, of, of feeling like you disappointed. In our pride, in our sin, it's hard, it's hard to go back. Uh, makes me think of a relationship in a, there's a show that, that Donna and I watched. It's an old show, Gilmore Girls. Remember that show? We watched that show. Uh, so... I don't know if it's good for our soul, but we watch it. So um, there's this character named Luke, who's this, he's just a curmudgeon-y guy. He's the diner owner. He's not an old guy, but he's just always kind of cantankerous. And early on in the show, his nephew gets sent to stay with him, Jess. And Jess is just a classic, rebellious, bad boy kind of guy. And there's just friction right from the start. Luke is always disappointed with Jess. Jess is always going off and doing his own thing. There's these big arguments, big fights. And finally, Jess just leaves go find his, his dad who had abandoned him earlier and there's a big fight and he goes away. But there's a point where he comes back. And when he comes back, again, fight, animosity, just harsh words said to one another. But there's this one moment, this beautiful moment where Luke, Luke just has this, moment, he has this clarity. And you can just see his whole disposition change. And he says, you know what, Jess, I just, I'm not gonna be angry anymore. He's like, I, I love you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to accept you for who you are. You're, you're always welcome back here. And you can see in Jess, when this moment of peace, he says, I just have peace about who you are. For Jess, it's like all of his, all of his kind of ready to fight, he just, he deflates. And right away, he starts speaking words of gratitude. You know, Luke, I'm so, I'm really, I'm so thankful for everything you've done. I want to pay you back. And Luke just says, look, I don't, I don't worry about any of that. I just want you to know you have a place here. And you can see immediately just the, 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 the love that bonds them together. Now, now, hear me, it's not that God ever didn't want us or was, was angry in that sense, but there is a wrath that came from God because of our sin. And what he wants for his people to know is, look, look I want you back. You're wanted here. You're welcomed here. And so turn, return to me and experience a renewed relationship that I, that I want for you to have. The challenge, of course, is how? What does that look like? How do we do that? And the answer, the answer is repentance. We need to repent. Now you might say that that sounds kind of the opposite of the expression of love. Because if I have to repent, it means that, so you're saying I got to do something so then I can return back, but it's not that. Okay, repentance, if you understand the word, what it means is you're going in one direction and you turn, right? You, You turn from the wrong direction, you're going back in the right direction, you turn to God. Repentance isn't the entrance fee to come back into right relationship with God, it's the way back. 
It's that you actually recognize that you're going in the wrong direction and you turn back to the right direction. And in our text, we have in detail what repentance actually looks like. So look at verse two. It says, take with your words. So the people take with your words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. It's speaking there about confession of sin. You have to say something. If you're going to return to the Lord, you need to, you need to speak the sin that is present in your life. It's such a powerful thing to acknowledge your sin. Think of, uh, think of marriage counseling. Marriage counseling always involves talking to each other because it's an incredibly powerful thing and an important thing that you would sit across from your spouse and, and look them in the eyes and say, look, I'm really sorry. I see that, that what I've done is wrong. I see that I've hurt you. I've heard it before, but I, I see it truly, and please forgive me. When words like that are spoken, there is an amazing reconciliation that can take place. It articulates something deep that is going on inside the human heart, and, and, it, and it acknowledges them in a public way. It's a, it's a humbling thing. That's why it's so hard a lot of the time for us to confess our sin, because we're, we're laying all our cards on the table. We're saying, I've, I've done this. I'm in the wrong." but it's essential for us to return because that's actually how you, you stop going in one direction and go the other way. And so for us to confess the promises of scripture that when we confess our sin, it is forgiven. So speaking the word, saying the word, some of us just, we know what's in there, but we just, we don't want to say it. What we see here is essential. We'll never return to the Lord without confessing our sin. Verse three, another aspect of this repentance though has to do with what we renounce. So we have, to, we have to confess our sin, repent, but we renounce idols. Here it says, Assyria shall not save us. Uh, we will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. So this very clearly is talking about idols, the things that they're creating and, and calling them gods. But Assyria also, uh, if you remember, this is the big superpower at the time. It's been threatening Israel kind of the whole way through. And the, the best way that the people thought that they could have some sense of security was to go and appease Assyria, uh, pay tribute to Assyria, adopt some of the practices of Assyria. When they did that, they, they felt like, man, if we're, if we're right with Assyria, then everything's going to be okay. Then we have security, we have a sense of hope. And yet what we see here is that that's never the case. That Assyria is actually the one, I mean, it could be at this very time that Assyria is coming in to conquer uh, Israel. 722 BC, around the same time that Hosea was finishing his prophetic work, the, the ones that they were looking to for security, they actually turned on them, which is a very realistic picture of idolatry and what happens. We look to the things of this world, they promise us so much, but in the end, they always turn on us. And so what, is, what God's saying is if you're going to return to the Lord, you need to recognize those things in your life that you've been hoping in and, and renounce them, turn from them. And what God says here, notice the language, in you the orphan finds mercy. I think there are a lot of people, probably all of us at some point, that could be considered um, idle orphans, meaning we've been looking to something, pledging ourselves to something, and when it abandons us, we feel totally lost. And, and we're like orphans that now have no one to care for us. 
And notice the language of God. He doesn't just say, you know, come back, be in relationship with me, I'll take care of you. He says, you need to find mercy. Mercy, because it wasn't just foolishness, it was, it was sin. But the grace of God is that he will shower his mercy upon us. And so he says very clearly to his people, look, return to me, and here's how. Confess your sin, turn away from the idols, come back, my arms are open wide, you will receive mercy and then there's incredible promise that comes with this. It's our second point. Okay, God is calling each one of us to return to him. Not to keep going in the same direction, but to turn maybe for the first time or return. And then we see that there are promises. God promises to restore us. And verse 4 is kind of like the, the transitional verse. Or, or rather, verse 4 kind of shows us how this is possible. Because in verse 4, we have all of the, the promises that link directly to the work of Christ. So look at verse 4. We'll read it again. He says to them, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. If you think about um, some of the things we looked at last week in terms of what God was, was desiring for his people, in fact, the whole way through, he's always been promising these things that the people back then, they couldn't see how this would happen. To, to, apostasy uh, means that you abandon the things you believe. Uh, and it, it, it's a heart issue. The, the people of God, they've been saying with their mouths all the way along, we're God's people, they've been going to the temple, but in their hearts, they have been apostate. They'd abandoned their one true God. And that meant that they were led into all manner of sin and unrighteousness. What God is saying here, that he's saying, I can heal that. Think of, think of what that means for us. A people, a humanity, that it says in Romans, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are in sin. All of us are apostate in our sin. None of us seek God. And yet God's saying, yeah, I, I'm going to heal that. I'm going to enable you to actually desire me, to live for me, to love me. And then it says, I will love them freely. This is more powerful than we realize. I remember uh, years ago, I was in this... Uh, I think it was a class, uh, Daryl Johnson, who's a pastor uh, in Vancouver, First Baptist. Uh, he, was, he was teaching, he was speaking. And he asked this question. He said, what do you think uh, is the thing that every Christian needs from God, ne needs to know? And he said, most Christians think that what they really need is to know God's will. And at the time, I was like, yes, that's, that's what I need. Because at the time, I was wrestling with the will of God. I was trying to figure out what, uh, I knew it was called the ministry, but, but what, Lord? I was, I remember, I've been praying many times up to that point, God, if you would just make clear what I'm supposed to do, oh, then I would do it. Then I would have peace. I would know I'm going in the right direction. Lord, please reveal your will. We often pray for that. Often at not just transition points in our life, but all throughout our life. God, tell me what you want me to do, then I will do it. But he said, that's not, that's not the essential thing. That the essential thing for every human being, every Christian, is to know God's love. And I remember thinking, I don't know, I think I, I know that. Like, it's, it's on bumper stickers. God, everyone knows that God is loving. That's the thing that we know about God. But the truth of the matter is that it's possible to intellectually understand that God is a loving being, but not actually know the love of God. And what we see here is that his promise is that he would love us freely. Not that he'd been stingy before, but that because of our hard-heartedness, we, we couldn't receive the, the, the love that he has in a free, unfettered way. And yet he's saying, I will heal your heart. 
I will, I will fulfill the promise. Ezekiel, I'll give you a new spirit, new heart, a heart that beats, a heart that's alive spiritually, and then you'll be able to freely receive the love that I have for you. And that this is part of the restoring work that I'm going to do in you. It's the beginning of it because now the conduit of all my power and grace is open. And the other side of that love, we see in the last part of the verse, for my anger has turned from them. And this, this is the thing that especially makes us understand this is only fulfilled in Christ. We saw last week that the, the wrath of God is stored up for all those who are in sin and that the only way for that wrath to be paid for was at the cross. That his suffering, his death, all of the ridicule, all the mocking that Jesus endured, the forsaking of God, that was the wrath of God being poured out on him rather than on us. So that now he, he can love us freely and we can receive it freely because all the sin has been wiped away. This verse 4 it's a direct connection to everything that Christ has done. The, the Israelites would not have known exactly how this would come to be. We have the, the blessing of being able to see it clearly. And so when we look back now, we can see even here God's promises, they will come true. And if he promised this for the Israelites and we can see it happen in Christ, all the things that flow from there will also come true. He promises to restore us, not just, not just save us, not just justify, that's, that's the beginning of all the amazing thing that God has for us. And we see it described here in, in beautiful poetic words. So I want to read through them and just unpack what exactly is God saying? Like what, what does the restoring work of God look like in us? If it was, if we were a car, we would know what that means, right? Here's a, we're all rusted and beat up. And if someone said, we're going to restore this, it means you're going to make it, make it like it was in its, when it was made. Return it to its initial glory. That is what God intends for us. But it's helpful for us to know, so what does that mean? What kinds of things will grow in me? Where, where can I look to see his work? So let's look at verses five and six. God says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. You can see there God making clear he is the dew. He is the source of, of spiritual water that will bring this newness. And, and what do we see here? The first thing I see is a restored sense of, of beauty. You see it there, right? That there's this picture of the blossoming lily. Uh, the beauty, I don't know if olives are that beautiful, but the beauty shall be like the olive maybe for them. It was the fragrance of Lebanon, right? That probably smelled really good. But there's this uh, imagery of beauty. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it means physical beauty, although, who knows, with our resurrected bodies, we could all be super buff, that'd be great. But, but probably what this is talking about, I think, is in terms of a beauty of personhood, a beauty of character. Uh, I think we know that there are people in our lives that we would just say, that's a beautiful person. And what we mean by that is, man, when I'm with them, I, I feel blessed. I feel encouraged. I feel loved. Uh, the person that came to my mind uh, is the person who's sadly no longer with us is Edward Tay. He's a beautiful man. When you were with Edward, uh, you, you just, you felt the love of God. You knew that he was for you with, the, with his, just the way that, I mean, his expression on his face, the words that he said, the way that he would pray. You knew this was a man who had experienced the love of God and that this was overflowing in his life in a genuine way. He wasn't putting on, you know, some act. He genuinely cared for you. He was thinking of you. I don't think we realize how ugly sin makes us as people. 
that, that when we're in sin, people come away from their experiences with us hurt, uh, disappointed, maybe frustrated. Maybe they feel like we've heaped up on them our expectations, whatever it may be. But when we have the beauty of Christ, it, it's, it's actually like we absorb all of that from the people around us. And, and we naturally seek to bless them because of how we've been blessed. I think that's some of what this imagery is communicating. And one thing in particular that I was thinking about the beauty of the olive, um, I think there's a, there's a beauty there in its usefulness, which is helpful for us to understand. You know, olives uh, back in that day are incredibly useful, right? Used for, for cooking, for eating, for lighting, for even for medicinal purposes. So an olive tree was very valuable. It took a lot of years to grow until it produces olives, and they, it, would, it was fruitful for so, so many different things. And I think that there's a beauty in that. There's a value in that, that God wants to work in us. Uh, that the things that he's doing in us are not just for our enjoyment, uh, but also for the blessings of others. In fact, that's part of the enjoyment. And we see this scattered sort of through uh, the letters to the New Testament, to the way that, that God is trying to grow his church. So one, one example uh, in 2 Corinthians, uh, where we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? For our benefit, certainly. He wants to comfort us, wants to show us his love, but also so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's the gospel. In those times of trial in our lives, the spirit of God, as we are in the word, as we're in community, we are comforted. We are reminded that God is for us. Our eyes are open to see his care. And, and we experience the comfort of God and we are blessed, but that's not, that's not it. That the beauty of our lives is that now when we interact with people, we have a comfort to give them. We can keep saying to people, look, what you see in me, it's, it's what Jesus is doing. Let me remind you, let me tell you of the comfort of God in Christ. And, and we're a beautiful person because we're useful, because we're valuable, because people can see the beauty of Christ in us. That's part of the restoring work that God wants us to do. But there's more than that. He also wants us to be a people of strength to restore within us strength. And you see that in some of the language um, that he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Uh, of course, that idea of rootedness, it just is strength. Uh, I, I, one summer, a uh, tree planted up north and uh, you would work in these big uh, blocks of clear-cut blocks and uh, you always had to be careful on very, very windy days when you came near the tree line because the trees on the tree line, they had been protected by the rest of the forest and all of a sudden, all, you know, the trees are gone next to them and so the wind, their root system hadn't developed. So you had to be always trees crashing down around you because the roots weren't strong. And for many of us, honestly, the slightest breeze and, and we fall apart. We fall over. We, we, we know the Lord, we know the gospel, but we, we aren't strong. And it's because our roots are not well developed. And part of the work that God wants to do in us is to bring about a genuine sense of strength, of resilience, of not just knowing intellectually the fact that God is for us, but believing it in a deep way. So that when the winds come, we, we stand firm. And again, you see this language that this, this is equated with, not equated with, but part of godliness. For example, Proverbs 31, the, the Proverbs 31 woman, a godly woman, one of the things it says about her, strength, Proverbs 31, 25, 
Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. Ladies, I think you know that's, that's a powerful statement. For all the things that could happen in the future, all the temptations that, that we all have towards fear, towards worry, towards anxiety, this is a woman who thinks of all of those things and she, she laughs. Why? Because she knows who God is. Her, she's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I mean, not back for the Proverbs woman, that's what it's pointing to. That we would experience the grace of God, experience the power of God. And that then as we look forward, even though there's so many things that we don't know how they're going to turn out, we have a strength to us. A strength that is a testimony to the strength of God. This is what God wants to grow in us, to restore within us. This is how it was intended that we should be. These kind of resilient people. And the last thing I see here is actually in verse seven is just um, a beautiful picture of abundance. Look at verse seven. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Just a, a beautiful picture of a fruitfulness, of abundance, of flourishing life, which I think pushes back in a really important way against the, the deception of the world. Because frankly, it's very easy to believe that if you're going to live a Christian life, you're going to miss out on a lot, especially when we're young, right? We have this idea that, look, if, uh, there's so many things out there in the world that, that the Christian life is a restrictive life and that, that I'm not going to actually enjoy the, the life that I want to live. And yet here we have this, this picture of overabundance. And if you put it sort of in concert with what we've seen in Hosea, Hosea, the, the people of God, they they had been deceived by the pleasures of sin over and over and over again. I mean, that, that was the whole thing, deceived by their own sense of strength, their own sense of wisdom, other gods, other pleasures. They wanted to hang on to God, but then bring in all these other things because they didn't want to miss out. And what we see time and time again is that, in fact, you're only disappointed. And that what you miss is the true satisfaction, the, the true joy that could be ours if we were to be restored in Christ. This picture of an abundant life, um, there's, a, there's a man that came to my mind. It's a man I met uh, a little while ago. And, and this was a man uh, who knew that he needed change, but, but couldn't make it happen. Uh, the reason that he knew he needed change is, is because his wife had basically said, look, I'm, I think I'm done. I, I think I'm... I think I'm ready to leave. The way that you are, the way that our marriage is, it's just, I, I can't do it anymore. And so he, he was meeting with me, he was talking with me because he knew he needed change. And there was a genuine desire for change. That there was a, a level of acknowledgement, clearly something is going wrong. And, and there was a lot of time and effort put in to change. This is a man who, who said he knew Christ and a man who started to read the Bible and started to pray. And there was so much effort and the growth would just be like this much. And it was so frustrating to him, to his wife, even to me after a while. What is going on? Where's the, where's the growth? And, and the thing that was hindering him is that he was, he was growing, but he was doing it all in his own strength. And he couldn't see it. And so we kept laboring, kept, kept trying, and it was not until God intervened. And here's the thing we need to remember about God is that he sees us in our labor, in our fruitless labor. And oftentimes by his grace, he intervenes 
to bring us to the end of ourselves. And so in this man's life, what happened is all of a sudden he couldn't sleep anymore. Night after night, just, just awake, awake, awake. And all of a sudden, this is a very capable man. All of a sudden he couldn't, couldn't think, could barely work. And he was just undone. And he kept coming and saying, what, what is going on? He, he, he was... He was pulled and stretched to the point that he got on his knees and he was like, Lord, I think you're doing something. I don't even know what it is. And it was in that, that kind of moment that his heart began to break truly for Christ and that the restoration process began. And let me tell you, the, the, the flourishing that has happened in this man's life is, is amazing. That, that he can see from his... Here, here's the thing. Now when I talk to him about things that we talked about before... Things like being patient, things like being, being genuine, confessing sin. Before it was such a struggle, now he'd say, I don't even, I don't even think about it. It naturally wells up within me. My, my love for my wife, my desire to honor the Lord, it just, it's growing in me. I can't stop it. When I hear him pray and hear him talk, he's praying about people at his work, people, he has a heart for other people in a way he never did before. It's something that God began in his soul to bring a newness and it, and it grew and flourished to now he has changed, his family has changed, his marriage has changed. It is the flourishing that God always intended, but it was being hindered. And listen, there's so many of us, I think that have some sense that God wants for our life to flourish and grow and yet we, we are stopping it from happening because we're trying to do it without God. We aren't returning to the Lord. We're hearing the Spirit of God in some way. We're feeling some sense of conviction and saying, okay, I got it. I'll go do it. And, and it never happens. The growth is minimal. And what God wants for us is abundant life, a flourishing life, a life that's filled with all of the joys, all of the love, and that it's not just in us, but it overflows. It blossoms. Look at, look at verse 8. God says, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. Saying, it's me. Why would you look to these other things? I'm always the one. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And he's intentionally taking two trees that don't go together and putting them together, an evergreen and a fruit tree. He's saying, I will always bear fruit in your life if you're rooted in me. If the restorative work of Christ and his spirit if you humble yourself, if you confess your sin, return to me and allow me to do my work, you, you, the power unleashed will be things that you can't even, at this point, you can't even imagine. And the whole way through, what you will be saying and be able to say to people is, is look, this what's going on, it's not me, it's Christ. It's his work in me. It's, it's, I'm, we are built to glorify God. We're only fully satisfied when we glorify God and hear what Jesus is saying to us through this word way back to the people. Time is, is God saying, I'm the one who does it. And I want to do it with you. The last verse is like an epilogue. And it's just, let me read it. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. You can just hear God saying, like, do you want to keep stumbling? Right, that's what they said at the beginning. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. He's saying, do you, do you want to just stagger in life? Do you want to just make it through the life? Or, or do you want to grow? Do you want to flourish? If so, then come to an understanding. 
And it's only gonna happen as you humble yourself before me. That by my spirit, you would see yourself clearly, see me clearly, and that you would come to a point of genuine growth. This is God's word to us this morning. And what a beautiful word. What a beautiful book. That through all of this, God was leading his people to a point of, of conviction. And so I would just say to us, may this be true in us. May we respond. May we let go of the things that are, that are hindering us, things of this world. May we let go of our pride. And may we turn and follow the spirit of God and allow him to do his work in us for his glory and for our good. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that it's because of your work on the cross that any of this is possible. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, you took on the wrath of God, all the consequences of our sin, and that in your death, we had the atonement that was needed so that the love of God would be poured out freely. And in your resurrection, we have a picture of this this flourishing life, this abundant life, a life that goes on for eternity, not, not just after we die. It's, that's not what this is about only. Yes, we need hope after, after death, but we need hope now, Lord Jesus. And so we thank you for this, this wondrous picture throughout scripture that in you there is life and abundant life. And so I pray for us as a people. I pray for those here who have never turned to God. May today be the day where there's a light that goes on in the beginning of, of genuine life that would grow and flourish, that they would come to repentance and faith. And for those of us that have expressed faith, may we see those areas where we are hanging on to the things of this world, see those areas where we are reluctant to speak, to say the, the words of confession that we need to say. And may we respond with obedience in the, in the full knowledge and confidence that it's you who are at work and it's by your power and by your grace that this happens. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.